Welcome to the world of culture pop with Steve Mason and Sue Kalinsky. Culture, comedy, movies, TV, tech, authors, trends, pop, pop. This is the Culture Pop Podcast. Hey, everybody, welcome to the Culture Pop Podcast. I'm Steve Mason along with Sue Ballou, Sue Kalinsky. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good for, you know, morning. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're recording this on Tuesday, December the 21st at about 9.40 or so in the morning. Now, for us, that's very early. It is. Um, and I've already had a totally crazy morning. I tr- had to move the gardeners because the gardeners were supposed to come and they were going to use the leaf blower. So I had to reschedule them. And then I had sent some bottles of uh, champagne to people I work with. And I used this service called Drizzly, which absolutely sucks. Uh, the uh, stuff didn't show up on time. So I had to cancel those. And then I went to a different place to have them shipped. And I, I mean, I'm just like all over the board. Wow. I, you know, I had a shipping uh, mishap last night. Oh, yeah. That, you know, I had to have uh, Amazon um, intervene. This is the most annoying thing in the world, right? So I, I do stuff with my sister. I help her shop online with yeah, Amazon yeah. Fresh. So um, I have a few, I have her account shipping and all her information on my account, and I have maybe one other person. So it said on top that it was going to her, but then when it came through, the food was coming to me. <laughs> I was like, no, that can't happen. So I go online and I'm trying to figure out how do you cancel this? So they give you the steps on how to do it, but there's some steps that don't exist. They're like, oh, so go to the drop down menu and hit, you know, cancel order. And it's like, yeah, if there was a drop drop down menu, that would be really easy to do. <laughs> and there isn't. It's like not anywhere. Right, right. So I finally, you know, doing like a chat. And then finally, I just said, can you just call me? Can we just talk instead of doing this like online chat? So he's like, yeah, okay. So he gets on the line. Anyway, it got resolved. They ended up telling, they, they well, first they told me, well, we can't do it because it already was ordered. Yeah. And then I pull like, you know, the Alzheimer's card because that's what's going on. I said, look, yeah. I'm dealing with someone with Alzheimer's <laughs> and the food needs to come there today. You got to cancel it. This is crazy. And, uh, and then someone else higher up, I guess, got on the line and they canceled it themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Always best to say supervisor. I want yes. the supervisor. Right. Right. But sometimes you go high, you go as high as you can go. And they're like, you've, you've pretty much tapped out. Yeah. I am the last person that. You yes. Can talk to. I, that's, there's nobody above <laughs> me. I am it. I am your soul. Con- yeah. I, I, uh, uh, well, I yeah. hope everybody gets their bottle of, uh, I was sending out to to really nice people, right, including Chris Morales, uh, ah, who's cool. uh, our former producer of the show. Uh, a uh, a bottle of uh, Dom, nice, yeah. But yeah. Uh, who knows if it'll ever get there? Thank you, Drizzly. I'm never <laughs> going to use that. I've heard such good things. Their commercials are everywhere, and then they totally suck. So um, they were recommended to you or you just saw their ads? And I saw their ads. They're like, hey, we'll deliver alcohol for you. And it's like, uh, forget it. Poorly. Yeah, poor, poorly. Exactly. So here's what's here's what I, I my game plan is today. So we're recording this before Christmas, but by the time people hear it, it's probably going to come out on January the 3rd. 
Christmas and New Year's were, will already be over. So I want to talk about Christmas and New Year's like it already happened. And so we're going to describe what we did for Christmas and New Year's. Does that make sense? Sure. All right. So, Sue, how was Christmas for you? Now, you're, you don't, ce- do you celebrate Christmas or do you not? I do because my husband is, uh, is Gentile. Is a Gentile and you're yes. a Jew. And I'm so a Jew. you do both. Yes, we, hide, we um, light Hanukkah candles. I don't get any gifts at Hanukkah. We save it for Christmas. So I do get Christmas gifts. Okay. So what did you get for Christmas? I got this really cool. Wait a minute. You already know? I, well, of course I know because we're talking about it, it as it already happened. Oh, it already happened. Right. Okay. So right. what what did you get? So I do know what I'm getting. Okay. <laughs> um. One of my gifts, there's probably other stuff. Well, sure. well, I'm not playing the game because I would know everything, but I don't know everything. But I do know that I'm, I got a, a really nice, um, it's kind of like a really cool fanny pack. You know, fanny packs are kind of back. So it's kind of like a really cool one that you can kind of sling across your, your shoulder. Um, and uh, it's, it's for women who really don't like carrying a bag. I hate carrying a bag around. So you don't it's carry like, a purse. I don't like carrying a purse. It to me, it's such an albatross, and I'm always like, "Where's my purse?" You know, it's like I put it down somewhere. So this is something that stays on you, and you know, in light of all the craziness that's been happening in our in our country with people, you know, like you can't leave your bag anywhere. Like I can't leave my bag on the floor. You know, not and not every table has hooks, which was the greatest idea in the world to have hooks under a table at a yeah, restaurant, right. or at a bar. Um, so. A lot of places don't have that. Um, yeah, so I know. So I, I got that. And, and I so you go out to a classy joint and you're wearing like a, a dress or a gown and you've got a fanny pack. Well, that's a different story. If I'm going to um, a fancy, How often do you wear a gown? Um, never. <laughs> you're <laughs> not never, a gown person. I'm not a gown gal at <laughs> all. Because um, I, I don't wear high heels either. So oh, okay, yeah, I wear kitten kitten heels. Yeah, okay, like got little it. ones. Um, no, so if I'm going to a fancy event, I uh, hold a clutch. A <laughs> clutch. Okay, got it. <laughs> yes, that's so purse that's terminology. That. So I do. Uh, I do love uh, that. Was a great gift. Yeah. No, nice. And what else did you get? Um, a facial. You got a facial. I did. Nice. That's a nice gift. Yeah. And a massage. And a massage. Right. Perfect. And some cash. (laughs) Cash. (laughs) Cash is such a great gift, isn't it? It's the best. Yeah. I mean, I always like, especially weddings. It's like you can go to their directory and you can choose candlesticks or whatever. But don't they really want cash? Yeah. Like, like, all right. So at what age did you... Did you stop like opening up a card and expecting to see money? <laughs> Do you know how old you were? Um, you know, well, this is a funny story. So even when I was in my 20s, my grandmother would send me a card with $5 in it. See, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. It was very, it was very sweet. I mean, I, $5 was a big deal when I was 10. It was less of a big deal when I was working full time and I was in my 20s, but it's the thought that counts, right? 
Yeah, I have a running gag with a girlfriend of mine. Um, I've been friends with her for probably close to 30 years. And um, we on on our birthdays, we each send each other a crisp $50 bill. Oh, nice. And we do it every year. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So it all evens out in the end. Basically. It's 50 and 50. Yeah. It's 50 and 50. Yeah. But it's just so, so fun that we, that we do it. We honor yeah. it every year. So what did you have for uh, Christmas Eve? What did you eat? We had, um, an amazing, um, chicken cooked in the green egg. Is the green, the green egg is that, uh, is, is a that grill, uh, right? smoker. it's like a smoker kind of grill. It's, it's just that the, 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 uh, temperature, um, gets very, very hot. So it's a slow cooker. Yeah. And Tom makes amazing, amazing chicken. So we nice. had that with some broccolini. Yep. And um, he makes these really, really great. Um, what your are they your they husband's such a great cook. Oh, I know. And he makes these great, they're called Hasselback um, potatoes, baked potatoes. Mm-hmm. So what you do is you uh, you, sli- you slice them horizontally. This is the recipe portion of the podcast. Yes. Yes, you you slice them horizontally. So then, when they're baked, they open up a little bit, and you know you put in little slivers of butter and salt. Nice. We had feast of the seven fishes. What's that? So my Italian side of the family, mm-hmm. when I was growing up, we always spent New Year's Eve or Christmas Eve with my uh, grandmother uh, Rose Santa Cruz in Altoona, Pennsylvania, and it's an Italian tradition: feast of the seven fishes, and you make sure that you have seven different fishes on the menu. It's a great Italian tradition. And so we had uh, Chipino, which has, which is kind of a cop-out. It's got tons of fish in it, right? So uh, it's got uh, shrimp and it's got clams and it's got scallops and squid and mussels and some kind of fish. And then we have anchovies. In my family, we have, do you like anchovies? I do like anchovies. So my mom slices an orange into uh, uh, slices up, and uh, then you put the anchovy on the orange. So it's kind of salty. Well, you do cooking stuff. Uh, Salty with a little acid and a little sweetness, and it is absolutely a perfect bite. Wow. Yeah. That's very fancy. Yeah. And then we got, uh, uh, Juan and I, don't give gifts to each other on Christmas or on our anniversary, which is January the 1st, which we celebrated this year, number 16. Oh, wow. 16th I, anniversary on wow. January the 1st. And we decided that we were going to get into the multiverse. So we each got o- Oculus uh, goggles. Oh, you told me about that. that and they are get so cool. We have been spending so much time in the metaverse. Um, we uh, Let's see. We watched the Nutcracker Ballet. <laughs> uh, we watched a Foo Fighters concert. Oh, we wow. watched a Golden State Warriors game. I, I have to come over. Yeah, you got to try these. Yeah. I mean, but, I'm fascinated. By, by the way, it. we don't have them yet, but but we got them for Chris, and they are they're spectacular. They're everything I hope for, and even more. Wow! Yeah. So, cool. uh, and then New Year's, you went camping, right? No, we didn't go. Ca- well, we came home um, on the thirtieth. Oh, on the thirtieth. So New Year's New Year's is kind of a tradition of staying home, eating lobster tails, 
And um, Tom, you know, will always have, you know, a steak of his choice. Do you ever cook? Sometimes. Or does Tom do everything? He, he does most of it. <laughs> you're lucky. You know, it's it's kind of like the question you're asking me. It's kind of like living with a plumber. And then you ask me, do you ever, ever do um, do any plumbing work? In the house? Do, you ever, do you ever fix the sink? You ever fix the sink or, um, or the shower? Right, because Tom, Tom is a chef. He is. I mean, he's not by trade, but he used to be. He used so, to be, right. So he's just an amazing, amazing cook. So he, we loves did, he loves it. Yeah, so we did for uh, New Year's Eve. What did we do? We stayed in. Uh, we, watched, uh, we watched Andy Cohen and uh, Anderson Cooper on the New Year's Eve. And I thought they were especially good this year. Super funny. Really? When they did it on New Year's Eve. And they, the nice are they ever are they ever super funny? Yeah, they're super funny. They are. They're they're funny. Mm-hmm. They're uh Andy I think Andy Cohen is a an actually really entertaining guy. And the thing I like about him is that he's pure Andy Cohen, right? He's not he, he you you worked kind of for him, right? I did. I did. I used to get notes from him when I was working on Top Chef. So I here's what I I love people who are just fully themselves. And I yeah. think Andy Cohen, I don't watch Andy Cohen except for New Year's Eve, but I think Andy Cohen is just 100% Andy Cohen. And I like anybody that's like that. Just kind of let it all hang out. Just be you. Don't mm-hmm. worry about putting on any any act or anything like that. Like yeah. I, you know who I really like and again, somebody I don't ever watch Wendy Williams, because I know for a fact, just from glancing at Wendy Williams, that Wendy Williams just doesn't care what anybody thinks. She's just going to be Wendy Williams. So, yeah. So I like Andy Cohen and Anderson Cooper on New Year's Eve. You know, sometimes when uh, someone has the quality of um, they don't care what anybody thinks, someone thinks that's a good thing. Sometimes I don't think it is. You know what I mean? Like when somebody just says and, and it could be like outrageous things and things that are just like really like I can't believe you just said that so but I do know what you're saying though I do know but you know what I say though. like don't care like for example my my radio what I do on the radio actually what we're doing right here we're just being this is just who we are right there's nothing put on here at, mm-hmm. at all we're just you know we're talking about the Christmas that we just had and about the New Year's right we just just had Right. And uh, so we're just being honest and real. And on the radio, I'm honest and real. I mean, I've talked about everything on right. uh, on on my radio show. Yeah, that that's 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 different. That's different than what I'm saying. You know, I mean, I, I think it's it's twofold. I mean, I think there are people that are, you know, unfiltered and they just don't hold back in a good way. But I think there are a lot of people that are unfiltered. And don't hold back and say things, you know, carelessly. Carelessly, you know I mean? right. Carelessly. Yeah, I, I get that. Sure. But but and your point about Andy Cohn being, you know, just himself and fun. I we're gonna we're interviewing, you know, Alex today. Alex yeah, Michelson, Alex. okay? Yeah. I can call him Alex Alex. And um I went on I went on his um Instagram page and he is a big fan of a guy named Matthew Friend. Do you know who this guy I is? I do not. 
He's a comedian who does uncanny impressions. And he has this shtick where he is on the street and it's like he is the person that he's going to be talking to. So he did one, which it's like John Oliver meets John Oliver. Oh, wow. That's cool. It's so funny. And he's so spot on. And he did one with Andy Cohn on the streets of New York. Yeah. And he's talking like Andy Cohn. And then Andy Cohn pops in interview. He does it on. I think he does it on on YouTube or TikTok or whatever. And it <laughs> YouTube, is TikTok, one of those. One of those. And it is so funny. Oh, that's great. So then I looked him up. Well, we'll talk to Alex about him because yeah, we'll talk to Alex. He is hysterical. All right, cool. Well, we will. Uh, our guest today is the lead weeknight news anchor for KTTV Fox Eleven in Los Angeles. Also, the host of the Issue Is, which is seen across the state of California. My friend Alex Michelson is here. Alex, thanks so much for doing this, man. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Steve. Great to be with you. Thanks yeah. for being uh, so, you know, we've known each other for a long time. I don't actually know anything of, about you, your background, where you grew up, any of that. So where you grew up in LA, right? Yeah, it's a very strong friendship. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. We're really good friends. I have no idea of anything about you. Uh, yes, I grew up uh, in LA in a suburb of LA called Agora Hills, uh, which is Northwest of, uh, of LA near Calabasas and Westlake Village. Um, went to elementary through high school there, went to Agora High School, was uh, student body president involved with the, played on the basketball team, real involved in school, uh, went to USC after that, um, where I studied broadcast journalism and also political science, um, was real busy with interning a lot in, uh, in school. I interned, my first internship was at Good Day LA, a, a show that nice. I was hosting. <laughs> I interned at NBC in, in LA with a guy named Conan Nolan, who became my sort of main career mentor and still is to this day. And we remained very close. He set me up in Washington where I interned at NBC in Washington and studied under Tim Russert, who was like the greatest wow. guy of all time. And yeah, uh, I'm in the Senate and the White House and doing a lot of that. I was really lucky. My first job ever uh, was in San Diego, where I got to start, um, ended up as a weekend anchor there after two weeks because the other weekend anchors like left right after I got there <laughs> and they needed to do something. And I was 21 and weekend anchor there. And I started at uh, Channel 7 um, at, in LA at 23, and I was a lot younger than everybody there, and then uh, been here at Fox 11 for the last um, three and a half, almost four years, um, and uh, been in a variety of jobs here. I think I've, I've like worked on pretty much every show we have, and I'm sort of lucky to be doing a lot of what I, what I love right now in a job that I never quite envisioned years ago. How tall are you? I'm 6'5". Yeah, you're always you've you've been at my house for parties. You are you are definitely the tallest person that comes to my parties. I, we need more like professional athletes at your party. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we definitely do. We definitely yeah. do. Yeah. So so Alex, I went online and um looked up like facts about you. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and there are some of these sites that are so crazy. So you just said that you're six five. Okay. So yeah. One of them said, drawing from his photos, Michelson is tall in stature. His height is around 5'11". Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Which, I, I mean, I've seen you at Steve's house, so I, I yeah. obviously know that you're not 5'11". So then, <laughs> it's just so, these are like the sleeves. So it says that you were born 
on October 18th, 1986. True. And then it's repeated that you celebrated your birthday on October 18th. And you do that every year. <laughs> I, I don't know. I guess do, do most people celebrate their birthday every year? Is that an annual day? tradition for on, you on the same day? Yeah. And then, yeah. and then it goes on to say, however, there is no available information in regards to his date of birth. Oh. <laughs> Where are you doing this crack research? <laughs> this is some site called facts factsbuddy.com. Oh, okay. Okay. No, this one is the greatest. Okay. So having worked in the media industry for quite some time, Michelson is able to accumulate a good fortune. His estimated worth is around $10,000 to a million dollars per year. Somewhere in between. (laughs) Did they nail it? Uh, yeah, it is somewhere in between. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Oh yeah. And then this is one of my favorites. So it says to find out more information about his family, our efforts, efforts to find out more information about his family came to no avail as no such information is publicly available. Yeah. So I don't know if your you know, family's on the lamb or something or, you know, Instagram page, which has a ton of pictures. I know. And then it says yeah. the identity yeah. of Michelson's parents is, <laughs> Still unclear. <laughs> unclear. <laughs> well, that could be a deeper issue. But, uh, <laughs> well, well, inquiring minds want to know. Are they in some sort of uh, witness protection program or something? In, in, my, in my situation, I do look uh, very similar to my father and have very similar mannerisms. So I don't think that's true, but you, you never know. <laughs> when, when you were growing up, what was the first time that you knew you wanted to be on, on the news? You know, I was really interested in news from the time I was like in elementary school. Um, I remember watching uh, the Today Show with Katie Kirk and Matt Lauer and being drawn to this this idea. I actually remember watching Bryant Gumbel's last show as anchor of the Today Show. And they did this big montage of his career there and his travels to all parts of the world and interviewing every politician and celebrity and the Pope and, and, and you know, witnessing history happen. And I thought, what an amazing job. Like somebody would pay you to do that, to talk to the most interesting people in the world, to travel to the most interesting places, um, to be able to, you know, hang out with athletes, which he did so much of and, and get to learn something new every day. Like that seems incredible. And I remember that moment watching that show thinking that would be really cool to be able to do some version of that. Um, and you know, I, I watched a lot of news as a kid. I was like a geeky kid that loved the news. I used to watch good day LA with Steve Edwards and Dorothy Lucy and Jillian Barbary sure. and I watched the KTLA morning news. And I, I love Tim Russert, you know, was like to me, the gold standard in sort of political journalism and, and Tom Brokaw at night and Peter Jennings and 60 minutes and all these different shows. And, and, um, I was drawn to that. I also was always drawn to politics too. Um, and so the idea of like finding a way to combine the two of those things is something I've thought about since I was like really little. I mean, I don't think that that pursuit of that in like middle school is like the way to get you dates, but (laughs) 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 it helped with the career trajectory. You know, the, the whole scope of, of being a news anchor or just a news person, even just journalism has changed so much. Like I remember you know, growing up watching guys like Walter Cronkite and Dan Rather, Peter Jennings, and you never really heard their opinion about things. 
You know, it was like it was it just gave you the news, right. you know, and how how difficult is it to report the news and keep your personal take out of it? Although Cronkite famously with uh, Vietnam went sure. there. Yes, yes. Prescription. And then, you know, they, uh, Lyndon Johnson said, if I've lost Cronkite, I've lost America. And yeah. not long after that, he ended up not running for uh, re-election. So that was pretty important. But that was, he picked his moments. <laughs> right. <laughs> it seemed to be really effective when he did. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I think the whole industry has changed dramatically, even since I, I went to college. And, and I don't consider myself that old. Um, but when I was first starting at USC, uh, in 2004, that was the first year of Facebook. Uh, USC was one of the first schools that got Facebook. I think there were like 30 schools that got it at the beginning. And when it was just a picture of your face, and that was it. Uh, there was there was no YouTube. There was no Twitter. There was no TikTok. There was no Instagram. Uh, we had BlackBerry Messenger that we were still messing around with. Um, and, and so to think how dramatically the world has changed even since then, I mean, when I started in, in San Diego, my, one of my first major assignments um, was they wanted me to explain, I do a piece explaining this whole social media thing. <laughs> it's like, what is Facebook? What is this, this MySpace thing? And, and like, I didn't even, I thought about including Twitter, but I'm like, yeah, not enough people are using it yet. And it's kind of confusing. So we'll leave that one out. Um, and let's go on, let's go deep in my space instead. Uh, and so you think about that and like how the way we get information has totally transformed everything. It's transformed the news industry. It's transformed politics. I mean, there's certainly an argument to be made that Donald Trump is not president without social media um, because he's, you know, was so good at using that for his own uh, gains. Um, and, uh, and in some ways it's made it better. And in some ways it's probably made it worse. Um, you know, the, the misinformation that's come um, from, you know, the lack of, you know, quote unquote, gatekeepers who are really the people you're talking about in years past, right? They were the, the filter with which we got our information through. And I think that whole era and that aspect of, you know, we turn to just one person as sort of a godlike figure to tell us what the quote unquote news is, um, I think is, is, is over. And we've all had to adjust and to try to figure out, you know, what comes next and how to make our way through this, uh, this changing medium. But I, you know, I, go go ahead. I was going to say, go ahead. I was going to say, you play it, you play it down the middle. Like I follow you on Instagram and I watch you on uh, KTTV. You play it very much down the middle. Is that hard to do? Uh, well, yeah, yes and no. I mean, here's my whole thing. Like, I hate the phrase when people say unbiased because I don't think that that exists. Human yeah. beings are biased, right? I mean, I come from the perspective of a kid that grew up from Anagora Hills that was born on October 18th, 1986, <laughs> celebrates his birthday every year on October 18th, 1986, right? Like, there are certain things that are uh, who I am as somebody who's 6'5 versus somebody who's 5'11. You know, like, there's different ways that you look at the world, and that's who I am. I think what's really important is to be fair. Um, mm -hmm. and, and to try to give, treat everybody with respect, uh, to really listen to people and to give people, you know, an honest chance to, to, to share their perspective. You know, for me in, in doing a politics show, I think what I'm trying to do is to give voters and viewers 
an, a, an opportunity to get to know somebody, um, what they believe in, and try to get a sense of who they are as a person. Because I think, you know, it's, it, that really matters too, a sense of somebody's humanity. Because a lot of times, certainly in primaries, a lot of people all kind of agree on the same thing, and it's trying to size up somebody's character and who they are. And so to do that, often the best way to do that is to kind of get out of the way and not make it about you, but to try to make it about them and to try to tee them up for, you know, success. To me, I'm not looking to, you know, have a gotcha in your face asshole moment. I'm looking to have a revelatory moment about the person. I think that's frankly more interesting and more valuable. Um, and also, I think it's a better long-term strategy to keep people coming back. You know, I view this industry, which I'm sure you guys know, having, you know, you see the same people over and over again. I think it's a marathon, not a sprint. And so, yes, you can blow up, you know, your relationship with somebody and have one, you know, viral moment that lasts for 15 minutes. But what good is that if you now never get to talk to that person again and, and you know, and it's, it's over? Um, so I, I think that's, you know, a part of it as well. And so I, I just really believe in being fair. And so we, you know, I've, I've, I've done more interviews with Gavin Newsom than anybody else in the state, but I also um, interviewed President Trump um, more than any other California journalist. And I was part of the press pool every time he came to California. He specifically requested me. And, um, you know, I, I interviewed Pete Buttigieg more than anybody else in California and Bernie Sanders more than anybody else in California. I don't think there's a lot of people that, you know, Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump are calling on. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. That, that, you know, there's a lot of it is just based off of respect. And so many of the politicians, and this may probably is true with athletes that you talk to, Steve, you know, feel like the media is looking for gotcha and feel disrespected. And so they feel like they can't trust people. And so if you're able to develop a rapport based off of just basic respect, I mean, they expect that tough questions are going to come there big boys or big girls that are, you know, media trained and all the rest of it. But if they feel like you're coming from a place of um, at least good intentions, I think that that can make a big difference. I, I, I don't know. I mean, if I were, well, if I was a news person, I guess I, I, I would have a whole different outlook because I'd, I'd have to. I'm coming from someone, I'm coming from myself saying, if I were interviewing somebody and I knew what they were saying was so egregious and such a lie, that's, that's what I have such a hard time with when yeah. I watch um, interviews sometimes because we know they're lying. I know that the person interviewing knows that they're lying because we've heard their lie. We've heard them flip-flop. Now, all of a sudden, they're saying something completely different from what they said like two days ago. Well, and, yeah. How hard yeah. is that? But I, no, I think that you need to call that out. Right. Right. So my thing is, I think our number one um, sort of loyalty should be to the truth. <laughs> so it's one thing if you say, I believe that, you know, tax, uh, the tax rate should be 35%. Somebody else believes it should be 25%. Like, and then there, there's a policy debate there, but at least we're being honest about the facts. But if Donald Trump says the election was stolen and rigged, and we know that it wasn't rigged, and there's no evidence that it was rigged, then you need to say that there's no evidence that it was rigged and point that out in real time. Yeah. You can't just let things go that are not true. And, and, both to their face and when reporting the story away from them. I mean, I, I do believe 
um, in pushing really hard when I know somebody is saying something that's not true and pointing that out on the air and pushing back on that. I think we all have an obligation to that. And I think a lot of people have failed uh, in doing that, which has been really dangerous for our society when you see what's happening right now where you have people that are living in like totally different realities, right? We have two like different, completely different media landscapes where facts are not facts. And I think that's really dangerous. And when you point back to the, the era of Walter Cronkite or Dan Rather, these guys, that, then at least everybody was starting from the same place. You started from the same set of facts and then you could come up with your opinion based off of that. And right now we've got a, a, an environment where people are not even seeing the same facts. Certain networks focus on certain stories, others focus on the other. And, and then people, you know, basically like have their eyes closed to a lot of stuff that's happening. You know, when I was a little kid, I was, I mean, literally a little kid, I was a political nerd. Like I followed race. Like I remember when uh, Agnew was off the, uh, when Agnew was replaced on the ticket by uh, Gerald Ford, uh, you know, by, uh, by Nixon. And I remember waiting, who is he going to choose? Who is he going to choose? I remember 76 following uh, I always wanted to live. What's right? that? I think he he never was. Gerald Ford wasn't even on the ticket. He was replaced after they had won. After, exactly. And after he was uh, the president, the only president who had never been elected to any. Yeah. After I knew got in trouble. Yeah. I'm in, I always wanted to live in California when I was a kid. So I, in 76, I remember following both Jerry Brown and Ronald Reagan. Uh, and then again in 1980 and kind of rooting for the Cal without knowing anything about the issues, rooting for them as candidates what and i so i guess for me it was the horse race element that was interesting as opposed to the policy element when did you first discover and i i've talked to you um off you know off camera about uh the fact that you're you're kind of a political nerd too right when, clearly <laughs> when did when did that actually start for you as a kid uh, the first race that I remember as a kid was Bill Clinton versus Bob Dole when I was like nine or 10 years old and, um, and really being kind of obsessed with the ins and outs of that and, and also being really impressed with Bill Clinton's ability to just charm the socks off of everybody yeah. in, in any room and, and watching the State of the Union and just kind of being blown away at how somebody could do that um, and to bring a, a, a room along with him on a, a rhetoric journey I thought was really interesting. I mean, obviously, um, you love sports. I love sports as well. Yeah. And um, I think that the horse race aspect, th there's a lot of similarities between sports and politics, but but politics just matters more, right? Yes. I mean, we talk about the Super Bowl. It's the biggest watch thing in, in, in all of America. We obsess over the NFL week in, week out. You think back two or three years ago, it's like, who won the Super Bowl? Like, you kind of forget because yeah. it's yeah. like, it comes, it goes. Great. Tom Brady had a nice day. A week later, okay, he's he's back with Giselle and whatever, you know, uh, versus, you know, Donald Trump versus Hillary Clinton, like that outcome really mattered. Yes. <laughs> matter, like what, whatever you think, there's a lot of people that think it was really good. A lot of people that think it was really bad. But it reshaped Man, the country. Yeah. That, are we still feeling the, the outcome of that? Are we still feeling the difference of, of Al Gore versus George W. Bush? 
you know, and the Iraq war and everything that came from, from that decision. I mean, the stakes are so important. And, and from a policy perspective, not just a politics perspective, you still in politics have an ability because of the massive size of both the state and federal government to impact people's lives in a positive way through government uh, in a greater magnitude than through anything else, through any nonprofit or through any business, just because the size of it is so huge. And the opposite is true as well. If it's not running well, uh, or you take away certain things from people, you have an ability to hurt people in a uh, really dramatic uh, way. And, um, and I think that that's an important part of the story to not always think of it just as a horse race, but you really get out in the community and, and see how much need there is. I mean, this past weekend, I did three different toy drives just because all these different organizations that yeah. I really care about and that I love. And I happen to go out there and spend a lot of time talking to people and seeing the real need. Um, and, and ultimately, you know, they don't really uh, care much about the ins and outs of the filibuster. <laughs> these are yeah. people that need help. They're struggling to put food on the table for their kids. They're struggling to get a Christmas gift for their kid. Um, they're, they're worried about you know, the pandemic or had to be essential workers during the pandemic because they don't get, you know, uh, paid days off. I mean, you think about that, like what really matters to people um, and how much real help um, is needed uh, for a country that has an extraordinary rich, poor divide. So when it comes to stories, um, how does it work? Like your, your daily situation, like do you, uh, you come, you, you pitch stories. I mean, does the network say, Hey, Alex, we want you to cover this. Um, how does, how does that work out? Well, it's, it's different, you know, so I do five different shows right now. <laughs> so they're all a little different. I have this one show called the issue is, which is our statewide political show, which they've given me unbelievable autonomy to do what I want. So I just, do what I want. I don't really ask for, for permission, and which has been great. They don't really kind of regulate me on that. We do another show called the Fox 11 News Special Report, which is on every night at seven o'clock. It's a live half hour show. We have several calls throughout the day with a very small team of me, co-anchor Marla Tay is our producer, um, executive producer, and we just kind of we're it. And we book the show ourselves and do our own thing. And then for the more traditional newscasts, we'll be on calls um, in the morning and then calls, different calls throughout the day where the reporters and producers and everybody will get on calls and everybody gets a chance to pitch a story or two uh, and put it up on the board. And, you know, and then we decide as a group who's going to do what and how we're going to go about the day. And when things break throughout the day, we'll make adjustments. You know, sometimes there's some stories that are just obvious. We had a year of like, obviously, we're going to do a COVID story today. Um, but there is kind of a, a, an ongoing discussion um, throughout the day, and and uh, and that's that's how it works. And sometimes we get it right, and sometimes we don't. So we don't do on this show only because you wind up pissing off half the world. We don't do political opinion uh, okay. on the show. But I'm curious about a couple of things. A couple of uh, I guess these would be horse race. If you were to look ahead to 2024. And you were to take a guess. Yeah. Who will, and, and you know, who knows what happens with Biden <laughs> and Kamala Harris. And, but what do you think the presidential candidates will be in 2024? Predict them. 
Well, you know, because, you know, there's, there's never anything good about um, putting a prediction on the table. Uh, as we learned in 2016, the people that made a prediction two days before the election were wrong. So, <laughs> yeah, right. True. Two, True. Two years out is not. <laughs> but throw a dart. Throw a dart. Who do you think? I mean, look, if you looked at, if, if you had to, to make a prediction today, if you had to put money on the table today, the most likely outcome is that Donald Trump becomes the president again. Yes. That's the most likely outcome. Uh, it, it, the most likely outcome is that the Republicans win back the House. Um, it's unclear whether Joe Biden runs again or not. But if the Republicans win back the House, they're going to do everything they can to slow down his agenda and try to make him really weak and impotent and stop everything from happening, which is going to make it harder for him. Um, there's a, you know, the country tends to like to go back and forth. And so um, and Trump has control of his party. Um, even though there are so many people in Washington and so many leaders that if you talk to them privately, will tell you that they don't like him and they don't want him to be in there and they're frustrated by him. They don't say that publicly. Um, and they are, and he has a connection with a base in a real way that very few people have. And certainly Joe Biden does not have with the democratic base. There is a a fervent zeal to his support among them. And it's hard to imagine anybody be able to take that on. And so that's the, the most likely outcome. Now, a lot could change um, between now and then. And, and who knows if Trump ends up running in the end? And, uh, who knows if Biden ends up running in the end? Um, right now, um, Biden still is probably the strongest Democratic candidate for president. And if that looks to be that way, um, uh, you know, a, a year and a half from now, there'll be extraordinary pressure for him to run again. Um, because uh, right now, Kamala Harris looks exceptionally weak as a potential candidate. Um, that could change. I mean, they're trying to get her out there more. Um, but uh, that if, if Biden doesn't run, if right now, if right now is the political reality and yes. political reality has changed, but if right now is the political reality and Biden was out, Kamala Harris would probably be challenged. Um, for the nomination. And who do you think uh, would get the nomination? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's, I, I actually, I don't, I, who do you think? Uh, I think if Stacey Abrams wins the governor's race in Georgia, I think she would be a really strong candidate for the Democrats. There are a lot of people that I've talked to uh, that are very smart political strategists that say the biggest threat to Kamala Harris is Stacey Abrams. Yeah, yeah. Um, what, what do you think they'll break the filibuster? Because we, we've seen this now, the, the, uh, the, the social spending plan, the so-called build back better plan. Um, Joe Manchin has sort of pulled the plug on for the moment. Um, do you think that they'll break the filibuster for say voting rights or is the filibuster just sacrosanct and they're not going to do anything with it? Uh, well, there's there's not evidence so far that they will. Um, you know that could change, but uh, you know, Kristen Cinema, Joe Manchin, others have been pretty clear that they don't really want to change the rules. Now, the way that the Democrat, I mean, if we're going to get really in the weeds here, <laughs> the way that the Democrats have gone about um, voting rights is different than the way that they went again about Build Back Better in terms of trying to court Joe Manchin's support. So, with Build Back Better, this giant, huge social spending bill. They, you know, Joe Manchin is like, I want one and a half trillion. And Bernie Sanders says, I want six trillion. And then, you know, it, he just, Joe Manchin was kind of the same the whole time. They kept trying to get him to move, but they didn't really, really totally bring him into the process. With voting rights, they said, 
all right, Joe, this is on you. You write the bill. <laughs> yeah. You know? Like you, th- you, you take, you take this one, make this, you know, your baby. Um, and so, you know, you're saying that you can get Republicans to do it. Go be our guest, prove it, you know, write the bill that's going to get Republicans to do it. So you don't have to change the filibuster. And, uh, and so he, he has much more buy-in to this process than he did to the build back better bill. So he may be more willing to make changes or, or change some of the rules to get this thing through, uh, which is his pet project than the other thing, which he never felt buy-in on, but He's not the only one who said that they don't want to change the, 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 the filibuster. Kristen Cinema from Arizona, her argument is, look, we can change the filibuster now to help Democrats on voting rights. But if and when Republicans get control again and there's no filibuster, we can't stop them from doing any of the stuff that they want. Yeah. And so it could end up being worse for us long term to do that. And she has not expressed in any way that she's changed on her position on that. And if she doesn't change on her position, even if you get Manchin, you still can't change the filibuster. Yeah, you know, I was, I was hearing the other day that um, people were questioning whether Manchin was going to stay a Democrat. That right. he was going to, you know, that he was going to hop the fence over to the Republican Party. Or caucus uh, with the Democrats as an independent. Right, which, oh, okay. which, which really would be um, no change for... What matters is who do you caucus with? So technically, Bernie Sanders is not a Democrat, right? He's an independent who caucuses with the Democrats. What matters is who do you caucus with? Because then that controls who gets the majority and who gets the uh, control the agenda, who gets to chair the different committees, all the rest of that. And if one person changes or one person dies or one person, you know, moves to a different job or something, the whole thing could change. So for all the Democrats that are frustrated with Joe Manchin, and we know that there are many of them right now, you know, Joe Manchin is representing a state that voted for, for Donald Trump by almost 50, almost 40 points. Um, and so he's in a different place. You know, the, the real frustration should be with Maine, <laughs> where uh, Joe Biden won and Sarah Gideon couldn't beat Susan Collins. Or yes. North Carolina, where this guy named Cal Cunningham uh, couldn't keep his, you know what, in his pants, uh, and it cost him in the end, and he was, you know, ended up losing to Tom Tillis in a race that he probably should have won. And if any of those races change, Joe Manchin is kind of irrelevant, and we wouldn't be having this discussion. They would have already passed BBB, and they would have already changed the filibuster, probably. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, it, it, Joe Manchin is like gravy. Right. Like he's like an extra thing. You need to be able to get some of these other people um, uh, to, to win. And that's what we'll see what happens, you know, next year um, and what's going to be probably a challenging environment for the Democrats, although much more challenging in the House than it is in the Senate. The Democrats have a better shot at, at winning uh, in the Senate. So we watched your uh, episode of The Issue Is with uh, Governor Jerry Brown, which was fantastic. Thank you. Uh, you got to go to his ranch and uh, you you really got personal with him and talked about advice for Gavin Newsom and all that stuff. It was really, really great. The, to me, the biggest issue that confronts the state at this moment is, and I can tell you that, uh, you know, a mile away from my house right now, there is a homeless encampment, Right, uh, is homelessness. And you follow sort of the the inner workings of what the state is going to try to do or is trying to do right now. What is, 
how is the state doing in handling the homelessness issue and what's the future of that issue? <laughs> well, clearly they're not doing great. Uh, no. based off the fact that there's that encampment uh, down the street from you and, and in so many other areas. Um, I mean, look, they, they are making some progress in some places and, and some of that has been public, including at the Venice boardwalk, not that far from you, yeah. which overrun, which isn't anymore at the, the VA uh, near me uh, where um, a bunch of, Homeless uh, people used to live out on the street and have now been brought into the VA. I'm, I'm going to be doing the issue is this week with Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, who um, bought, you know, $250,000 worth of tiny homes um, for people uh, that uh, to live at the VA. And we're going to be uh, announcing that. Um, I hope I'm not breaking the news here before we're supposed to, but whatever. I don't know when this comes out. But the, the, the point being... Um, there has been some progress, but there, as Jerry Brown pointed out to us, though, the problem is the progress um, may not um, match with the problem. Uh, the problem continues to grow and the progress is not moving fast enough to stop it. I mean, they've tried all sorts of different approaches. They've bought up motels. They've bought up hotels. They're trying to build permanent housing. They're trying to build these tiny homes. They're starting to do tent villages where there's security and food for people and security guards. So that way there aren't attacked. I mean, they're, they're trying a lot of different things. Next year, you know, the state is, is giving more money to this problem than they've ever given before. Uh, this year, it was a record amount of spending with $1 billion in the budget. Next year, it's $12 billion. Hmm. So they're going to be trying a lot of things. As Gavin Newsom sort of said to me off camera when he, we talked about that $12 billion uh, uh, number, he's like, if we can't figure it out with that, like, <laughs> you know, like, like we're doing everything we can, like we're basically throwing the kitchen sink at this. Um, and we'll see if there, um, you know, is change, changes on it. But there's so many structural, you know, deep-seated, complicated issues of homelessness that are tied with mental health and addiction and, you know, problems in the economy. And there's so many different kinds of homeless people, too. I mean, the, the, for the problem for, you know, a, a, a family that couldn't pay the rent that is struggling for a month or two and living out of their car is a very different problem than a Vietnam veteran who has PTSD, is severely drug addicted, and has been living on the streets for month, for years. Yeah. Like, they're different problems, and they require different solutions. And so when people say, you know, homelessness, they got to remember there's a lot of different things going on there. Yeah. And like a lot of things that I see is, you know, they're, they, it seems like they're coming up with solutions. Like you talk about these tiny homes and, and, and putting people in, in, in maybe motels or hotels in, in certain neighborhoods. But a lot of the people that live in these neighborhoods don't want that yeah. in their neighborhood. So it's like, on one hand, you know, they're, they're the same people that are saying, Hey, you got to do something about it, but don't do it here. And that's got to be so frustrating too, because you got to do it somewhere. Right. I mean, they, they, the L.A. City Council, which has 12 districts, um, came up with a plan that every district is going to get some of these people, basically spread the wealth around um, because of that problem of not in my backyard, the nimbyism is what they call yes. it. And uh, it got really ugly. <laughs> people saying, I don't want it here. I mean, even in Venice, um, as you know, Steve, um, which is as liberal an area as there is in the entire country, yeah. um, there's huge pushback. Um, with community organizations fighting back against a lot of where to put homeless people. And, uh, and, and that continues to be a problem and, and it's going to get, you know, dicier uh, as we go forward. So 
you know, I'm curious, you know, I got to work at channel 11 for a couple of years. I did the sports on the weekends and I got to fill in on good day LA and all that stuff. And I, I talked to a, uh, another news director at some point at, at another uh, station. And they said, you know, we used to compete for like fours and fives and now mm-hmm. we're competing with ones and twos. And what, what's the state of, of local news right now? Yeah, I mean it's a challenge, right? The the ratings have gone down from then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, and I'm sure there's there's some of that in radio as well. Sure, uh, people are you know still in their cars every day. Um, I, I yeah, I mean I think it's 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 a challenge to try to figure out sort of what's the next thing and, and how to be relevant. I think we this much is true. Uh, local news is always going to matter. The question is, what exactly does that format of news information delivery look like? Um, but there's always going to be, you know, local crime and fires and pursuits and, you know, look at what we've seen in terms of this pandemic and how important, you know, coverage was. And, and when people really are in moments of crisis, um, they do seek out that sort of information and you'll see huge rating spikes in those moments when people really need you, they really need you. Um, but I, I do think that we need to figure out how to be uh, more relevant to sort of way, the way that people get their information. And the big challenge, I think, for local news is to do it right, just like to do national news right, um, it, it is expensive and takes resources um, to really have quality experienced journalists all over the place digging in and doing some of the you know less than glamorous work of like going to city council meetings and holding people accountable i mean i think the the death of local newspapers around the country is, yeah. is a huge huge sort of death blow to um to society yeah. and i think we need to figure that out i mean one potential um thing that was going to be tried out in that build back better plan was um, a multi-billion-dollar federal investment in trying to subsidize um, local newspapers and, and local news organizations around the country to try to give them some help um, as an industry. And if this Build Back Better bill, in fact, goes down, um, that could be another one of the the losses um, from that. Why do people love high-speed chases so much? Why do people love freeway? Because you know, like I'll be doing the show. And like, I, whether I'm at the station or I'm home, like I am now, and I'll flip around. And when there's a high speed chase, everybody in the world seems to, you stick with it and people watch it. And I, I work with John Ireland, John Ireland thinks, thinks there should be an entire channel devoted to freeway chases. Yeah. Why, well. why do people love them so much? Because, you know, like when I go to a movie, I love it because I don't know what the end's going to be. But in the case of a high-speed chase, I always know how it's going to end. What, what is the appeal? No, you don't. You don't always know how it's going to end, and that's why people love it. Uh, they don't always end the same way. Sometimes they get away. Um, is there going to be a crash? Is it going to end uh, peacefully? Is there going to be some big moment? Is there going to be a spike strip? Is it going to be spun out? Are they going to right. Are they going to, what are they going to do? The reason that people love high-speed chases is because they don't know how it's going to end. People love unpredictability. Those are the stories that do the best. That's why Trump was such a big star in politics. Because when he came out to give speeches, why did CNN give him all that free 
uh, coverage and MSNBC and Fox and everybody else cover his rallies. If you covered a Marco Rubio rally, you know exactly what he's going to say because he yeah. says the exact same thing. The yeah, exact the standard way, stump speech. Sure. speeches every day. Trump knew what people wanted to see. He wanted, he was doing Bill O'Reilly every night. You know, talk about the news of the day, which is what the networks really wanted to see and what was like its own spin. Um, and, and so when you have seen the, the, the massive rating spikes in, in the news industry, it's always when you don't know how it's going to end. When we had riots on the streets of, of Santa Monica and Long Beach and all the rest of them, which was the highest ratings that we've gotten in years, it was because what's happening next? Where, where is this going? And you kind of watched it unfold like a reality show. I mean, the, the challenge, if you talk about for the news industry now, is this idea of at 10 o'clock, I'm going to tune in and you're going to tell me the day's news of what's happened. People are now experiencing everything in real time. Right. They're looking at their their phone. They're getting uh, uh, updates all day long. They've all lived it. So they don't necessarily need that, <laughs> that sort of thing. What does well now is when you can experiencing something in real time together. Um, and and uh, from a pursuit, you can't follow that via Twitter. You got to see that from the chopper. And that's something that local news, you know, can provide. And clearly there's an audience for it. I mean, if you look at um, it is the only thing that is guaranteed to increase the ratings every single time. There is a precipitous increase for every single station when they go to pursuits, which is why stations do it. Um, I don't love pursuits. I don't. Actually, I, I, don't, I don't love them. I, I think we lose a lot of good news that we've been working on other stories throughout the day. Um, but if people really don't want them, then they shouldn't watch them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I get pissed off. My husband likes to watch chases, you know. I get so pissed off because it's like, I want the news. And I, and some, like, I remember the, when it first started happening, I was like, I can't believe they are doing an entire newscast following this idiot. (laughs) I have, I have, I have pitched and sometimes we do it, um, which is like a picture in picture. Yeah. Yeah. We do the news and then we keep the thing going on the bottom. If it's, especially if it's a boring one. And then if anything happens, we go back to it. But like, let's also get some other information out there that's like critical to people's, you know, lives. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I uh, last thing for you, you're a huge uh, USC football fan. You went to USC. Right on. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I did the pregame for them for 10 years uh, and worked for uh, for USC on, on their football broadcast. What did you think of the hiring of uh, Lincoln Riley from Oklahoma? Well, I mean, who doesn't love it, right? Yeah, I know. First time <laughs> that we've been excited about USC really since Pete Carroll. I mean, it, it's a, it, it feels like happy days are here again. Um, it, it is, uh, it's great. I mean, it has been so frustrating to be a USC fan for the last few years for a variety of reasons, not only based off of what's happening in football, but all of the scandals that have happened yes. um, off the field, which have just been embarrassing and, and sort of, um, speaking to a larger culture of corruption <laughs> and money driving the equation there and and um, sort of a realization of the ugly realities of how we got there before. I mean, that's in some ways that Pete Carroll era kind of felt like a steroids era um, in that, you know, we pumped it up so much, but then you, you have questions about how we really got there. And so um, I think the Lincoln Riley thing is great. I mean, you know, at, at this 
the, the reality in LA sports, as you know, better than anybody, Steve, is you got to win. Yeah. I mean, look at the competition. You're competing with the, the Dodgers and the Lakers and now the Rams and the Clippers and the Chargers, even though a lot of people don't see them as an LA team. And, uh, you know, all these different sports things that are all really good, you know? I mean, you know, our, our secondary uh, baseball team in this market has Shohei Otani and Mike Trout. Yes, yes. <laughs> so the, the athletes are exceptional. And so when USC was really good, when I was there, like most of those other teams weren't that good and we didn't have pro sports. So Matt Leinart and Reggie Bush were our pro athletes and Nick Lachey and Snoop Dogg and Will Ferrell <laughs> all in on USC because that was the place to be. And like that has not been the case for a while. So USC has to up its game if it wants to compete in this environment. I mean, it was so sad to look at those images of like USC versus UCLA and like nobody in the stands. Yeah, right? I know. I and, know. Uh, so well, all I, the coach, you know, all the past coaches in the past years, you know, they've just been band-aids, you know, they've just been quick fixes, you know, that never, you know, I mean, now you have a solid coach, you have somebody that's like, okay, things are going to change here. Well, and it also feels like we're finally um, done with like Pete Carroll's assistants. Yes, <laughs> yes. person that has no connection to that um, era, which I obviously love and I love Pete Carroll and all the rest of that, but like. We don't need the assistant. We need a head coach. Uh, yeah, it's funny. I actually had a caller uh, while the search was going on and said, I don't want a coach who's even had dinner with Pete Carroll. <laughs> because we had so many offshoots of the Pete Carroll tree. And I love Pete. I mean, I, you know, I sat with Pete every single Wednesday and we did a live show with him uh, when, when he was at his peak and the Trojans were at their peak. And he's such a good guy. He's such a great guy. I loved working with him. But that time clearly had passed. And I think, you know, you mentioned the teams and their success. I also think if you look around, you know, we've got Mookie Betts and we've, We've got, you mentioned Shoei Otani and we've got LeBron James and, right. you know, we've got, we've got stars in this town. And I feel like Lincoln Riley is one of our stars now. Right. All right. I mean, I, I was so frustrated years ago when they um, made Cliff Kingsbury the offensive coordinator to Clay Helton. Very for like briefly. For three minutes, right? Yes, very um, briefly. Like, to me, when I saw Cliff Kingsbury, I'm like, that guy's a star. Yes. Get him to be your head coach. That's our Sean McVay. Uh, right. Yep. And obviously he's had, you know, great success, although I don't know what's happening with the Cardinals right now, but that's a whole nother thing. But um, you know, that, that, that to me is what Lincoln Riley is. And to be uh, at USC, I think you need to be that way. And Clay Helton, who is one of the nicest people, any of us, have wonderful ever, guy, I mean, wonderful guy, but he's not a star yep in that setting and so i think he's somebody who at another school somewhere in the middle of the country with a much smaller media market hopefully will find great success um and be beloved and i hope he is because he's a great guy but la is probably not not the place for him yeah uh well listen this has been uh this has been great this has been fun man i gotta say before i, I wrap up i i know that you guys love succession and i liked your last show talking about it yes great was the succession finale <laughs> oh, it was so good. And I, you know, I think the big question now, first of all, good for Tom. I mean, he was, he, he was, you know, Shiv was terrible to Tom and uh, he, <laughs> he was ready to go to prison at some point and they called him the Christmas tree and you could hang any charge on him. Um, and to see him finally turn the tables and essentially become the snake, I thought was 
fantastic. But where do you think it goes from here? Like when they restart and we talked to, um, we've talked to a bunch of Ariane Moyed was uh, probably the interview that you listened to, but we've talked to Alan Rock and we've talked to a bunch of the cast. What, what do you think it looks like when they restart the season? I don't know, because to me, that felt like a perfect series finale. Yes, it did. Yeah. Like it felt like, wow. Like other other seasons were all like left you on cliffhangers. And this one really felt like it all, I mean, it, it is a cliffhanger, but it felt like it wrapped it all up. Like it was the perfect encapsulation of everything that the show has been about, which is who's going to be the successor, uh, the kids all fighting. And then Logan basically saying, we're not going to have any successor. Uh, and then, you know, Tom getting his revenge. Like it all was so perfect. It felt like that Breaking Bad finale in a way, which yes. was the greatest finale ever. Like it just made sense. So it's, in some ways, everybody's like, I, I can't wait for, for the next week. It's like part of me is like, I don't want there to be a next week. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Although it's so, and I never, I never use this word when it comes to entertainment, but it was, it was also delicious, right? I mean, the, the way they were at each other's throats the, the entire three seasons. But, I, you know, we talked to, uh, to Ari and he says, yep, they're back in the writer's room in January and they're shooting for uh, production this summer and show coming back in the fall. And I just wonder what it's, what it's going to look like. Yeah, it's hard to. Uh, I, and do you really want to see like Tom as the power player? I don't know. <laughs> oh, so entertaining. <laughs> so entertaining. He's such a goof. He's such a goof. He is. Yeah. That show, um, that show is so. Well I thought that was one of the best episodes of TV that I've ever seen. That, yeah. That finale of success. Well, because you know, it's it's just been like hanging in the air for so long. Like you know, I I have friends who who have watched it and said, oh God, it's like. It, it seems like it's the same thing all the time. It's just they're rehashing and, you know, they're just, oh, they're just being mean to one another. And what's it building towards? And it finally crescendoed, right. you know, it finally um, ended in a way that it was like, okay, all this time, it was so worth the ride. Right. Well, and, and also just the episode, the, the, the scene of uh, Kendall, you know, on the ground breaking down. With oh, his, yeah. And, and was, confessing. Like, yeah. Yeah. yeah so uh, satisfying too and to watch and to see like maybe a little bit of character growth for somebody on that show <laughs> yes yes mm -hmm. <laughs> a little bit a little, a little bit. bit a little bit of redeeming value yeah. uh well listen man have a uh have a great holiday season and uh happy new year and uh we'll keep watching and uh, by the way the issue is when when does it, it airs fridays in LA on Fridays at 10:30 on Fox 11, but it airs all over the state of California in different markets at different times. So if you go to the issueisshow.com, um, we've got a link of all the different cities and the different air times there. And you can also check it out on on YouTube.com/slash uh, Alex Michelson or the Issue Is Podcast. If you're a podcast person, clearly you are. You're listening yes. to this podcast. You mm -hmm. can download the Issue Is Podcast, and it'll come to you for free every week as well. Um, and you can check out our interviews with Gavin Newsom and Jerry Brown and Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, just to name a few in the last few weeks. So awesome, um, man. Yeah, appreciate the chance to plug cool. it. Hey, thank you. And uh, happy to talk about pop culture or sports anytime. It's a nice break from politics. You bet, man. Hey, right. thank you. Thank you very much for coming on, man. We appreciate it. Thank you. And there is uh, Alex Michelson, who I've known for a really long time. And as he pointed out, you know, I said, I don't really know much about you. What kind of <laughs> I consider us to be friends, but I really didn't know much uh, about him. But he's great on camera. He's great on TV.
Yeah, yeah. He's very charming and very funny and smart. And, and he's such a political nerd. Yeah, and, and he does great interviews. Yeah, he does. He does. You know? Um, yeah, he, he kind of like uh, um, Jerry Brown was a little, um, he was a little uh, flustered with, with one of his questions. And, uh, but in, in a good way. I mean, he yeah. wasn't, he wasn't, you know, trying to probe, you know, he was just asking him, um, like, what's the history? They were, they were talking about history. And he says, what's the history of, of Jerry Brown? Like, you know, what, what g- give me that take of you? Yeah. And it was such a difficult question for him to answer. And he was like, oh, uh, he was like, oh, you, you it's pretty amazing. The me. youngest governor in California history and the oldest governor in California history. That's that's impressive. Yeah. That's impressive. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so Sue, uh, you know what I uh, am doing for New Year's? Um, you're staying home. No, I rebooting my life. I'm rebooting my life. Wow. A little, a little less Puriyeska. You know what the Puriyeska is, right? Yes, I do. And a little more gym. Okay. Yeah. So that's I'm gonna. But I've already started. Like I, I started before the holidays. I never like to start on January the first. I'm going to start because I always think that's bogus. I started before the holidays, so uh, rebooting my life. Okay. Um, I am going to start over, and uh, I'm going to be more healthy. That's my that's my goal. Okay, I'm going to get a pool going to see how long this lasts. <laughs> when will I order donuts for the first time? I want to be supportive. Yes. I want to be supportive. I know you could do it because you've done it. Yes. It's just how do you stay on this path? It's hard. It is hard. It is. You know, because I I went off my F factor, you know, diet, you know, went down to Florida, visit family. And it's, you know, there's food there that they eat that you don't eat or there's temptations with dessert or, you know, went out for Italian food and there's pasta and cheese and fried stuff and fried calamari. And it's like, uh, yeah, I know. I know. I know. Well, I did good over the holidays. I didn't eat too much over the holidays. Oh, good. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh, good. Oh, you had your, uh, your, uh, your, what is it? The feast of the seven fishes, seven seeds. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, Hey, you know, over the holidays, it may be that you you know, everybody's driving around. You're driving to San Diego or Palm Springs or wherever it is. And it may be that you got into some kind of car accident or some kind of motorcycle accident, or it's you or your kid or your wife or somebody you know at work. The The advice I give is that you should call Jacob and Ronnie because he's been doing this for 25 years. And so true story, 2019, I get into a car accident, downtown L.A., what do I do right from the scene of the accident? I call Jacob. Jacob. I call Jacob. And he handled the entire thing. He handled uh, my insurance company, their insurance company, all the paperwork. I didn't need to go to a doctor, but if I would have had to gone to a doctor, he would have done that within 24 hours. And if you're involved in something, you want somebody that can get you the justice that you deserve and get you the compensation that you deserve. So remember the number, 844-24-JACOB. Even if it happened over the holidays, it happened Christmas Eve or New Year's or whenever it was, 844-24-JACOB. That's 844-24-JACOB. Or remember the catchy jingle, accident or injury. 
called Jacob and Ronnie called Call Jacob. Jacob. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Hey, if you're listening to the show, don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. We appreciate that. Leave us a rating. Leave us a uh, review. Always meaningful to us. Hey, Sue, great show. Had fun. Great seeing you. Great seeing you. Hey, is it too late to say Happy New Year? Because I know it's after the first. No, happy New- you're allowed to say Happy New Year for uh, 10 days after January the 1st. And then okay. you have to stop saying Happy New Year. So Happy New Year is officially appropriate. All right. Well, Happy New Year, Steve. Happy New Year to you. And we will see everybody next time on the Culture Pop Podcast. Culture Pop.